One of the best ways to earn more money is to start a side hustle. Part of growing your side hustle is working with the best tools to help you succeed. Shopify is here to help. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way did we just hit a million dollar order stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify's easy-to-use system allows you to set up a sales page, take payments, and start putting your new ideas and products out into the world with ease. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to help support your success every step of the way, because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash beginners, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash beginners now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash beginners. Hey there. I want to tell you about one of my favorite podcasts, Freakonomics Radio. Every week, host and best-selling author Stephen Dubner dives into the hidden side of business, economics, and so much more. He interviews CEOs, historians, and Nobel laureates to explore all kinds of topics, like whether AI has a sense of humor and how whales went from being economic engines to environmental icons. If you're a curious person looking to better understanding the world around you, you'll find everything you're looking for on Freakonomics Radio. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. I love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Tonight, we have a special return guest. We have Eric from the Intelligent Investing podcast, who is also the founder of Granite State Management, Capital Management, Granite State Capital Management. Okay, there we go. Got it. All right, great. And he's back with us again to talk to us about stocks and the markets and lots of great stuff. So Eric's a smart dude, and this is going to be a fun conversation. So I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to Eric, and let's go ahead and have a little chat. Cool. Well, it's nice to be back on. How you guys been? I've been good. You know, I did want to ask you before we jump sure. in because I follow you on Instagram. Okay. And I swear it's like once a week you're putting on some really nice looking piece of steak, whether it's, yeah. you know, I, I think you mentioned like grass fed or, or something like whatever it is and, and the way you're seasoning it, it, it reminds me that I need to, I need to up my red meat game. You know, I don't, I don't know if you ever watched the show Survivor. I know Dave's uh, watched it. A long time ago, yeah. Okay, so they basically, they have a bunch of people starving on an island, and then they have them compete, and, and they'll have them compete for food. So sometimes they'll show, like, Outback Steakhouse on there. 
and you know they'll get really emotional they'll start crying and, and you know that's kind of how i feel every time it's about my time to have a ribeye so you know the question i have for you yes where, where are you getting these steaks man well from several places but my go-to is costco actually love costco ribeye yeah you know why costco ribeye is so good no because they blade tenderize it it's the only it's the only place that blade tenderizes their meat interesting yeah so that's why it's so it kind of it's soft and tender when when you cook it even if you f it up a little bit (laughs) yeah like uh that's actually my parents' secret too. When when they when they barbecue at home, and yeah. you know I, I love I love the different steaks at the different restaurants, but nothing beats that home Costco Costco. I, steak. I, I, I mean, I buy it out. from Whole Foods too, and I think Costco is better most of the time. That's that, that that's interesting. Okay, yeah, and cheaper. <laughs> <laughs> have Have you gotten a chance to get that that Japanese Wago yet? You know, so not from Costco because I don't really feel like spending like a hundred dollars on steaks, even though it's probably a good deal. But there's a um, in Philly where, I, where I'm at. There's a local hot pot place called it's some like the Chubby something, and they have an A5 Wagyu hot pot. You know, all kinds of steak ribeyes and, wow. and short rib, and I mean it's not it's still expensive. You know, it's like thirty five dollars, and you're getting these like super thin pieces of steak. I, th- I did it once, and I will tell you, I had never had a y- A5 Wagyu before until like a couple months ago. Oh my god, it just me- literally melts in your mouth. The fat is is like butter. It's un- it's unbelievable. So if you have if you can find a hot pot place that has it, it's fantastic. I would have never thought of that. Yeah, I, I know. <laughs> have to add that to the to do to- list. Well, <laughs> I asked the I asked the waitress. I said, "Is this going to be a waste of money? Am I going to taste any difference? This like thin piece of thing." in yeah. boiling water she's like oh yeah you'll, you'll taste the difference and yeah it was awesome interesting well you know i guess kind of kind of in that realm you had we had talked before about you know international opportunities yeah um that was an interesting so, that was a great transition <laughs> speaking of japan yeah <laughs> nice segue um, yeah so well, maybe you can talk Talk to the uh, average investor about what what it's like to buy stocks because you know Dave and I are primarily U.S. stocks guys, I and mean, we know there are taxes involved when you when you look at companies outside of the U.S. So maybe you can talk about some of those implications. Yeah. So for full disclosure, I am you know not a tax expert, so I'm not giving professional tax advice on the air. On occasion, you'll you'll have some tax withholding or there's some special thing, but for the most part, it's just, you're, it's treating it as capital gains. And if you do a current, you know, when you convert to the yen, depending on how the U S dollar conversion to yen goes, you, you might have some gain or losses uh, on the income. So you, you get like a currency sheet. So you have to declare income or losses for currency, but then you get a 1099 with the capital gains on it. So it's, it's relatively straightforward. I think there was one situation in Israel where I had to have a whole ridiculous tax form but that's really been the only instance and we've been doing this for quite a while so there's no like like let's let's say it's japan for whatever yeah. reason like there's no extra taxes from the japanese government and then from no. u.s no no not okay. that i know i hope not <laughs> <laughs> dividends dividends and capital gains and the same as you would in the u.s well the dividend always they'll, they'll you'll see on the 10 and 9 of like a dividend withholding tax so like they, they might take you know, a little bit out of the dividend 
Um, mm. I don't know what the exact laws are for for Japan. I know, like in Canada, I get that, but yeah. Interesting. Do you do you see opportunities out there? Like, how do you how do you parse focusing on you know U.S. stocks versus international opportunities? Or are you just always looking at the whole the whole kind of pot? So always looking at the whole pot. Certainly, the lens that I'm looking at it is different. So, like in Japan, Japan's weird. Where historically and still to this day, it's still pretty much like that. You know, the the sh- the corporate governance is, is really bad, and in Japan and South Korea to an extent as well, companies aren't always being run for the interest of shareholders. Sometimes there's even. You know, in Japan, I, I, and I might be getting this wrong, so I apologize if anyone's Japan. In Japan, can correct me if I'm wrong about this, but my understanding is that you know a lot of people still look at owning stocks as a, as a form of gambling, and then in the Japanese market specifically, some people don't buy stocks because the dividends are like these like interesting little gifts. There's no word for it; I don't remember the word. You know, where you might get like movie tickets or you, you get some little perk. So there's certain like social. Social benefits to this, where you can say, "Oh, I'm a shareholder and and so and so company." There's a pride to it, and then a lot of Japanese companies, they're being run for things other than shareholder value. So they might be being run for longevity and, and for you know the you know for honor. Right? There's a big it's a big honor culture. So there's a pride and honor of you know this is what we do. We've been in business for 673 years, and we own you know 19 golf courses and a fishery and. You know, but our, our main business is in handbags or something. So you see a lot of weird stuff. Generally, the returns on capital or returns on equity are, are pretty low for a lot of these businesses because they own, say, again, you, you have X X of book value in the main operating business than 10X in real estate. That doesn't that has just been on the books for you know, 800 years. So you see situations like that all the time. So the, the lens that I'm looking at when I'm, I'm say buying Japanese stocks that I'm typically taking a basket approach and I'm generally buying them really cheap, you know? So I, I always think it's a humorous occasion. I'll come across one of these write-ups saying, Oh, you know, the stock's trading it. It's, it's a, the quality business. It's trading at 12 times earnings and it's hovering right around cash. So you're, you know, don't worry about it. Cause you know, you had your cushion for cash. It's like, well, do you know how many times I've owned a Japanese stock trading below net cash? Like those, those things can change pretty, you know, pretty quickly. Uh, and if that business ever has a, you know, a turn for the worse, you can easily see a stock trade below net cash in, in Japan. But generally, you know, if you, it's interesting, if you look at, and of course, this is back testing, but if you look at, like, you know, during those few decades where Japan's, the Japanese market went nowhere, you know, if you had just bought, say, a typical Ben Graham net net stock approach in Japan, you would have compounded, you know, in the, in the low teens where the Japanese market did nothing. So that's kind of interesting. I've done pretty well in Japan. And again, mostly buying these businesses that are not very profitable, not very interesting. Occasionally, you'll get one pop, like 75% in a day, and I'll, I'll sell into the volume. But you, I, I take a basket approach. There, there is one Japanese stock that I do own a larger position in that, that's larger than just a typical basket. But in that case, you know, the management does have a good track record and and they've been very ethical, and and the stocks trade. It's a growth company trading like five times earnings, and you know that's actually been one of my worst investments. I I I've owned it for a little over a year and it's gone nowhere. Where my basket has done a lot better than that over the last few years. So we'll see how, that how big out. is the basket. So you know people get a sense of yeah kind of this idea of digging in the trash and, and finding really really cheap stuff. I, I I'd have to look. It might be like 40 percent of. The portfolios that I manage are in these these basket of you know micro cap cheap stocks. 
like number of stocks wise? Are we talking like in the five to ten, or like fifteen to twenty, or for the basket? Yeah, maybe like d- depending on the client, maybe like ten to ten to twenty, ten to okay. twenty-five. Yeah, and then so there's there's still there are things that I'm looking for. I'm not just indiscriminately buying net nets. So there are things I'm looking for. So for instance, with Japanese stocks, I tend to look for businesses that are not burning a lot of cash. They don't have to be profitable. Actually, unprofitable net nets tend to outperform profitable net nets, interestingly enough, and and companies that pay dividends underperform companies that don't pay dividends from a basket approach. But you know, they're not burning a lot of cash. They're not selling stock. That's like a huge red flag if you see a stock trading below net cash and they're selling stock. And then typically to... you know, another red flag is say if they have a big, a lot of their their main operations might be in China. It it doesn't mean anything inherently, but by avoiding say Japanese stocks with with large, large operations in China, I'm removing a lot of fraud risk. And I mean, if you look at China over the last few decades, right? You know, look the news cycle is always, especially today, right? The news cycle is very clickbaity. It's always how can I have the most negative headline possible to get the most clicks? Bleeds um, and leads. Yeah. So typically when you read anything about China, it's usually pretty bad. I've just seen Chinese frauds where you can just get killed and it looked optically cheap until they went to zero. So I guess keeping in the far east, Yeah. Uh, we talked a little bit about off, off air before we came on about Charlie Munger and some of his thoughts on China. Yeah. So <laughs> why you wanna, do you want to touch on that? That live wire? Yeah, or sure. No, no, sure. That they're doing something corrupt. And, and, and the truth is, like, there's a lot of stuff that China does that's, that's, that's pretty bad. But there's a lot of stuff they did, have done that's pretty good, especially, you know, it's become a lot more of a capitalistic uh, society. There's been, I don't know the numbers, but the amount, of po- the amount of people that have been taken out of poverty over the last few decades is, is staggering. So... China is in a much better position financially and the people are, are have a much better standard of living on average today than they did 30 or 40 years ago. And I, I think that trend is just continuing, but it's going to take time, right? I mean, they're, they're, they're much newer to markets than the United States is. So I think generally I, I agree with Charlie Munger that China has a great future ahead of it. But you'll also notice that Charlie's, most of his Chinese investments are done through a fund managed by uh, Li Lu, yep. uh, who is you know knows Chinese, he's he is Chinese and knows the culture and is able to you know have a much better boots on the ground understanding of China. And I think you need more of that because I I, I mean I have seen situations. I'll, I'll tell you a story actually. So when was this? This might have been like two thousand. I mean, like 2006, 2007, and I had invested in a company called China Media Express, and they had their, their business where they made billboards for like buses. You know, so if you like see those buses, large advertisements. And why I invested in them is that, you know, they were very profitable, you know, huge returns on equity. I'm talking like 40, 50% returns on equity large growth rates, and, and they were significantly more profitable and higher ROEs, higher margins. And all their competitors also traded below net cash. So I was like, this is a no brainer. And there was a, who was it? There was some, there was some large other large investor that was well known that was also investing in the company. So it made me feel a little bit better 
And it just got weird. It was like, oh, what, why, why is the thing trading below net cash? What's going on here? And uh, I had called, you know, if you went on their website, they had all their clients, and one of them was Coca-Cola. So I called, I called, you know, investor relations for Coca-Cola, and I didn't really know who to leave a message for, but I was just saying, hey, there's a company I'm invested in, supposedly your client just wanted some, you know, more light on the relationship. Oh, excuse me. And um, the head of marketing for Coca-Cola called me back, and uh, she said, you know, we don't, we haven't heard of this company, but that doesn't inherently mean we're not working with them. It could be one of like our local, you know, Chinese bottling companies that works for them. I will look into it and see if there's any, you know, sort of local Coca-Cola related companies that might be working with them. She calls me back two weeks later and says, you know, no, I can't get in touch with anyone in China that knows this business. So I'm like, okay, that's strange. And I, I sold the stock right after I heard this. I was like, you know, that, that freaked me out. Oh, okay. And then there was a Seeking Alpha article of some guy who like had went to China and he was a shareholder and he went to headquarters to like meet with the CEO. And he like walks in and there's like a few people sitting around playing like ping pong, but like no one's doing any work. And he was just like, what, or his pool or whatever. But he, it did not compute to him like what was going on. Like, how could this be a real business? Right. Anyway, it turned out the entire thing was a fraud The to the point that they faked the cash in their bank account. So the cash wasn't even real. Wow. Oh, wow. Right. So that's an extreme example, right? But you see Chinese frauds all the time. And I actually did some research into Chinese net nets, and I was thinking, well, maybe... You know, if you bought a basket, right, it takes, you know, the fact is maybe you're getting paid to take on that risk. Because, you know, as value investors, sometimes, right, just kind of like unprofitable net nets do better than profitable net nets. But I thought maybe Chinese net nets actually do incredible. And, and you have a few frauds, but the other ones go up a thousand percent. Well, it turns out that owning a portfolio of net nets, if you exclude China, you do better. <laughs> so, right. So, so, it's it's just hard. I think if you're not on the ground, it's it because there is still a lot of fraud. If if you're not in China or speak Chinese or have connections in China, it just makes it makes the game harder. And and I think there's other opportunities that aren't as hard, and that you don't you know you don't get bonus points for for making you know, harder investments. So I, I avoid China, but I'm but generally I'm bullish on the country of China. I just as an investor, I, I don't invest in China. So what do you think of like the Alibaba, Alibaba's and the Tencent's and any of that kind of stuff? What are, what are your thoughts on any of those companies? Yeah, I, I mean, they seem good. Uh, I, I, I don't know. You know, I'm actually reading. I'm actually reading a book right now on you know the founder of Alibaba, but you know, I don't know if that's going to help me or not. You know, right. with an investment, but I just think it's interesting. But mm-hmm. I would imagine, right? Charlie speaks to Li Lu all the time. I would imagine there's probably some insight that he has. Yeah. You know, when Charlie Munger said it's just a replacement for cash, of course he's, you know, Charlie being Charlie, he's going to play, play it down. He's not going to just buy any random company as a replacement for cash, right? He's not. Right. You know. So obviously there's something he likes about it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I remember reading a, this was less than 12 months ago, probably. It was 
not just some small no-name Chinese company either. It was Luckin. What was it? Luckin Coffee. Coffee. Yes. Yeah. 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 It's it's awful. You know the the fraud that they had with that, and I guess there was some boots on the ground firm that was kind of checking in on on yeah on the company's numbers, and they're like, "There's no way." Like even just looking outside of these coffee restaurants, there's no way that with the flow of traffic that that they're getting anywhere near what they were reporting. So this is not just like a one or two off thing. This is uh, a big thing. And what's sad is, is that was one of the companies I saw a lot around the internet of people saying, you know, get in on this. This is the Starbucks of China. Right. And it completely blew up. It's, it's awful. Right. I mean, could you imagine if like Starbucks all of a sudden one day went away or McDonald's? It's like, that's not going to happen. Right. Well, you know, everybody wants to call the SEC the bad guy, but, but there are good things to having those kind of regulations in place, which, you know, for me personally, makes me kind of timid about going outside of the U.S. But at the same time, like you're saying, if there's you know countries where that's not a problem, like Japan, um, yeah, you don't. You it really is not as much. Yeah, I mean, with Japan specifically, you know, if you were committing financial fraud in Japan, it would be a very dishonorable thing. Right. And, and, and there's there's certain social clout by running a public company in Japan. So, but a lot of these companies, they're not, again, not being run for shareholders. They're being run for longevity. In time, like you're saying, if there's, you know, countries where that's not a problem, like Japan. Um, yeah, you know, there, you it really is not as much. Yeah, I mean, with Japan specifically, you know, if you were committing financial fraud in Japan, it would be a very dishonorable thing. Right. And, and, and there's, there's certain social clout by running a public company in Japan. So, but a lot of these companies, they're not, again, not being run for shareholders, they're being run for longevity. Hmm. So, different, different idea. Yeah. One of my favorite apps on my phone, Monarch Money. Monarch Money allows me to easily see my finances, helping me better manage my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I could quickly see where I am with my budgets and my spending without having to log into four different accounts to see where I am. This gives me more time to focus on what's important to me. Monarch also has built-in collaboration features so you can invite your partner at no extra cost. You can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget, and get insights on your cash flow and reoccurring transactions together. No more mysteries or confusion. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated, all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. One of our biggest challenges when we started our podcast, it was editing and transcribing the show. The technology wasn't there and it made growing the show that much harder. Once the technology improved, we could spend more time on the show, improving the content and marketing. 
If you run an e-commerce business, then you already know the pain of time-consuming work to fulfill orders, not to mention all the resources used up. Enter ShipStation. They make it easier. They're the multi-carrier shipping solution that integrates wherever you sell online, including Shopify, and streamlines your workflow so your business can grow even when you're on summer vacation, like hopefully now. ShipStation's easy-to-use, simple dashboard makes it easy to automate shipping and manage your orders all from one place, even for a tech challenge guy like me. Easily import orders from everywhere you sell online with shipping configurations automatically applied. Scale your business and reduce warehouse costs with ShipStation's reliable enterprise solutions and save thousands on shipping costs with discounts up to 89% off UPS, DHL Express, and USPS rates. Work less and ship more with ShipStation, the innovative tool that helps you turn your shipping challenges into opportunities for growth. Go to ShipStation.com and use code INVESTING to sign up for your free 60-day trial. That's ShipStation.com code INVESTING. This is Chris Christensen from the Amateur Traveler Podcast. The Amateur Traveler Podcast is about the love of travel. It's about where to go and why you should go there. We're going to open up to you different destinations you haven't heard of or places you have heard of but things you didn't know to do while you were there. Each episode is about 45 minutes long, and it's typically an interview with someone who wrote the guidebook on that destination or who has been there or who's a local tour guide or someone who is an expert on that destination and knows how to tell you what to do to get the most out of your precious vacation time. So if you value your vacation time and you want to use it wisely, listen to Amateur Traveler and learn about destinations both domestic and international, places you've heard of and places you haven't. Amateur Traveler has almost 900 episodes talking about different destinations. So if there's a place you want to go, odds are we've already covered it and can help you plan a trip there. Amateur Traveler, subscribe today. Hey listeners, you know what makes life more fun? Having your money situation solved. How great would that be? Today, I want to introduce you to The Stacking Benjamin Show, a podcast that delivers exactly what you most want when you listen to money podcast, less preaching and more genuine money talk. Do you want to learn how to build wealth and manage your money? The Stacking Benjamin Show has you covered with practical advice and expert insights on personal finance. The Stacking Benjamins is run by former financial advisor Joe, co-author of Stacked, who CNN just awarded a number one spot on money books you need to read, and OG, short for other guy, of course, who is a working CFP who is familiar with the struggles and latest trends in the money world, all created live from Joe's mom's basement in Texarkana. Their headline segment keeps you up to date with the latest lessons to be learned from the news, and their TikTok minutes shines a light on just how bizarre money advice can be online sometimes. The Stacking Benjamin Show was just named Best Personal Finance Podcast by Bankrate. Here's what they said about it. Unlike other competitors hitting the airwaves, the team doesn't tote Stacking Benjamin as the be-all and end-all for lessons on money. Instead, they share a broad range of concepts and resources to create a more comprehensive financial foundation for their listeners. Fast Company calls Stacking Benjamins a perfect blend of fun and functional, and I think you'll feel the same. So if you want a podcast that delivers exactly what you need most in a money show, tune in to Stacking Benjamins. Find them on all major podcast platforms, including where you're listening to us right now. Your wallet will thank you. Okay, so let's, I guess, let's kind of well do a really rough segue. <laughs> all right, let's, uh, let's segue off of China and some of the fraud stuff, and let's talk about the recent merger with 
Discovery and Time Warner and, and all that fun stuff. I will admit I don't know much about it, but okay. it sounds to me like you might. So maybe you could shed a little light on that subject for us. Yeah, sure. So um, also full disclosure, I'm a shareholder. Second time now around. So I had originally bought Discovery Communications a few years ago. I actually saw the only idea I've ever gotten from CNBC. Um, John Malone happened to be doing an interview a few years ago and was talking about how he thought you know, Discovery was probably pretty cheap at the time. I was trading in a really low multiple to free cash flow and it was just being valued as a melting ice cube, right? You know, where the the all the, the cord cutting and discovery, the legacy business being tied to cable. You know, there was a there was a concern it would just decline forever. But the thing, you know, the, the thing with discovery that I liked originally, it's a very capital like business. You know, it doesn't take, you know, you don't need to hire actors, right? You can film some animals in a, in a forest <laughs> or something like that. And you you, know, you have like five hundred thousand dollars in production costs. There's no zebra, zebra uh, unions, right? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Don't give anyone any ideas, though. There's some people. That, you know, I, I joke, but there's like, you know, some people. I was just talking to a friend of mine the other day about this, where it's like, you can come up with some really bad like, government idea, and there'll actually be someone who, who wants to initiate it. So I don't even want to joke about zebra unions because yeah. there's going to be some radical animal rights activist that says, oh, that's a great idea. Uh, <laughs> and we're in the whole discovery phase, but with discovery, yeah. So you know, very capitalized business, and it just spits off free cash flow. So that's what, and it was trading in a very you know a low multiple, basically like it was going to just be declining, declining forever. And I also like the fact that John Malone was a you know controlling shareholder. So that's why I bought it originally. The stock ran up a lot. I sold into that run up. I didn't sell at the high where it got into like the seventies. There was that you know the big liquidation that had happened with that fund. But anyway, you know on May seventeenth, Discovery and Warner Media, which is owned by AT and T, announced they were going to be creating this global entertainment leader and and, and combine. So the way the transaction would work is AT and T would spin off, uh, basically would shed the Warner Media assets, and then Warner Media and all of Discovery would merge together. This would create literally one of the largest content libraries uh, in the world with direct-to-consumer distribution. So, Does HBO get bucketed into that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. CNN so, as well? Yep, yep, yep. So, I, yeah, you have HBO, CNN, you get sports rights, you get like the DC brands like Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, all of that. And what's interesting is the combined company... You know they they're on target to spend together twenty billion dollars, and to get sort of the extent of that, Netflix is guiding for twenty twenty one seventeen billion. Okay. So it's kind of a big. It's I mean it's a huge deal. And if you're combining you know HBO Max with Discovery Plus, you know I, I honestly think this is like a you know literally you know total home run here. I, 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 I this is why I bought back into it. Now I thought what would happen. See, I thought I heard about it. And I, I assume the stock would shoot up a bit. And there was a temporary, I think, like for the first day it went up. And it's now below the, the amount, you know, when they announced uh, the stock has just sort of drifted down. So the, the, the market actually doesn't like this deal. Um, and I can get into that if, if you'd like, yeah. why I think that is. Why um, do you think that is? <laughs> so I, I, yeah, so I think, it's, I think there's a few reasons. I think the... One of the reasons is time to completion. So their estimate is going to take two years to do this deal. And, you know, so, so if you're an arbitrager on Wall Street, you know, this isn't something you can do in two months. And if you're someone who even just has a big job on Wall Street to have a sort of this uncertainty for two years of what's going to happen, because a lot of things going to happen in two years, 
I think a lot of people are not interested and maybe even be selling it because they don't know what's going to happen in two years. There's also a possibility there's like just a technical overhang from the AT&T shareholders because they're not going to be getting their dividend from the new, the new entity. So what's possible is I think there's probably some fear. Again, I don't know, but I th- I'd say it's probable that there's a fear that once the merger happens, the um, AT&T uh, shareholders might just indiscriminately sell the stock, which I'd be happy about. I would just buy more. Um, I kind of hope that happens, but I think that's a concern. And then so I think just, probably sorry, the biggest, before, yeah. Just to be clear. So from what it sounds like, cause I don't know the situation, it sounds like you have AT&T and then yep. they're spinning off this Warner thing. And then yep. they, the, the Warner entity is going to take over discovery. Yeah, so, yeah, it's going to every shareholder. You're getting shares. Yeah, so as a discovery shareholder, you're getting shares, and the yeah, so yeah, so you're gonna you're gonna own a, a small percentage. Yeah, so let's see, the AT and T shareholders are gonna receive seventy one percent of the of the new stock. Okay, yeah. and Discovery's getting the other, getting the other. Yeah, but yeah, I think the, I think yeah. the third reason is you know it's gonna be a highly leveraged business, and you know they're looking. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but they're they're looking to. Deleverage to okay, so yeah, they're gonna they're gonna look to deleverage uh, deleverage to three times EBITDA over time. But I think there's probably some concern that you know, let's say Discovery Plus ends up being a flop, that the companies just are two melting ice cubes that combine. I don't think this is the case, but you know, if there were two melting ice cubes combining, now it's a gigantic melting ice cube, and now they have all this debt. And I think the concern is that because the company has so much debt, I, I don't think that's a problem because again, this company spit out so much free cash flow. Um, I was a Discovery shareholder when they merged with Scripps just like a few years ago. And with the Scripps deal, uh, they had levered up to five times to get the deal done. And they were projecting they would get to about three and a half times leverage in two years. And then once the merger closed, they had hit their leverage target in under a year. And the synergies were double what they originally projected. I mean, this is bigger, a bigger deal, obviously. But I just don't think this... I mean, Discovery Plus has been you know, a total home run as well for, for them. So you're, you're getting a, a business that's very, very cheaply valued. You know, right now the combined company would have, let me just take a look at my notes here. You know, it have a combined enterprise value of about 130 billion. And the, you know, the company is projecting in 2023 that they would have 14 billion uh, in EBITDA. So you're basically, you know, it, it, it's, it's, going to go for like a little over eight times enterprise value to EBITDA right now. And it's, it's, a, it's a pretty low valuation for a company that's actually growing and will have synergies. You know, if, if you had valued this, yeah. So yeah, it's a little over eight, eight times enterprise value to EBITDA for 2023, you know, 12 times. So, you know, if you just said, okay, I think this company should be worth 12 times EBITDA, you'd get about 75% upside. And let's say there was real synergies and, you know, the synergies were really great and the valuation went to 15 times, you know, you're talking over 130% increase in the stock price. You know, I, I do think it's interesting too. So John Malone, who's the major shareholder, you know, for your listeners who don't know who he is, you know, he's probably the best media investor in history. There's a book, a book about him called Cable Cowboy, which I highly recommend. But he is someone who has used debt over the years to do a lot of financial engineering. And he likes to be in control of companies. He has actually come out in favor of the deal as a Discovery shareholder, and he's giving up control. For, so for Malone to give up control of something that he owns, he must love 
the deal. I, so I do put some weight on, on his press release. That, and he also did an interview on uh, CNBC the other day as well, which I recommend checking out. So I guess along those lines, some of the things that I've heard certainly mirror everything you were saying. A couple of concerns I saw on Seeking Alpha the other day was a concern about AT&T's dividend uh, being, yeah. being either cut or not being paid. And I think that was like rattling through Seeking Alpha like an earthquake. Yeah. And then there was also comments about the CEO for Time Warner would be actually leaving the company and the gentleman who runs Discovery would be the one taking over. And I think there was some concern that maybe he was not the the right, right cowboy to lead the company, so to speak. So I guess what are your thoughts on those two ideas? Yeah, well, I, I think he's actually done a pretty good job at Discovery. But again, they're, they're you know, Discovery Plus has done wonderful so far. You know, the companies, again... A lot, lot of cash flow, uh, asset light businesses. So maybe they find someone better when, when it happens. But even if they don't, I, I, I think you're going to do pretty well. Like it's, 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 I think it's a very asymmetric bet. There's a, there's a lot of ways to win here. And it's, it's priced like a melting ice cube. So I mean, that's the thing. It's, it's so cheap that even if things just stayed the same, I would expect a higher valuation. And if the synergies work out or work out better, yeah, I mean, I think the valuation goes up. Yeah, I, I guess one of the things I wondered too was, you know, AT and T bought bought Time Warner for what seventy three million, not that long ago, and now they're kicking it out for forty three million. So, you know, it just seems like it's like one of those. It's like a basketball player that nobody really wants. They just seem to keep passing it between each other. So, how you know how is that? Yeah, if that has any bearing on any of this? Well, I mean, sure, but I do, I, do, I think the combination though of of what you're getting, I mean. The, you know, you look at Disney Plus, right? I don't know if you've ever used Disney Plus. But oh, yeah. I got a pretty, nine-year-old, yeah. <laughs> okay. So, you know, I used the trial. I actually watched a lot of the old stuff from when I was a kid. But it's pretty cool. Well, oh, just awesome. imagine now you, you turn on, you know, your whatever it is, Discovery Plus, and, and you have, you know, HBO Max and, and Discovery and Wonder. I mean, it's a pretty awesome content. Again, they're spending, they're going to be spending more in for content than Netflix. So, and then there's not a lot left. I mean, you don't you don't have much left. So, I mean, I guess you you could have a situation where, where Comcast could step in and and and, and say, hey, we you know we want to we want to buy this, which would suck for what that would see that would be bad for Warner Media. You know, and actually, you know, in some in some some weird twisted way, if Comcast if Comcast wanted to say step in by Discovery, break off the deal, and then let like, Warner Media struggle for a few years, then buy it for even cheaper, like that would be a good yeah. you know. But yeah, I mean, I think Warner, I think Warner Media needs someone like a Discovery to merge with. Discovery is fine on its own right now, but it would be better, you know, some other content library. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a good viewpoint. I, I like I like your idea. I'm gonna probably check into Discovery and see what I think about it. So yeah, yeah, and, sure. yeah and just to address your point with the AT and D dividend cut too. Mm-hmm. So you know they're spinning off the Warner asset, so that new entity is not going to have a dividend. So, I mean, at some point, AT and T will. Pay, if, I don't know about if they will fully cut their dividend, but even if they do it, they'll pay it again. I mean, it's AT and T. Most people who are investing in that business are doing it for, you know, the income stream. So they're not going to change that after you know a hundred years or whatever long they've right. been around. But I think the the real concern is, will those AT and T shareholders then just dump the new stock because that's not going to be getting a dividend? I'd say a lot of them probably will. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a good chance. That would be a buyer. I'd buy from them at a lower price. 
Yeah, it's a very good chance. That's a it's a concept Joel Greenblatt talks about. What was his book? I think well, you can um, be a stu- you can be a stock, stock market genius. genius yeah. Yeah, where a lot of times in spinoffs, the shareholders don't want whatever's being spun off, so they they right. sell it, and it's a great buying opportunity. Yeah, the problem the problem by just doing spinoffs though indiscriminately is ever since that book came out, the spinoff opportunity has been mostly arbitraged away. You know, if you had just been doing spinoffs since then, you actually haven't done so well. So, and, and a lot of the spinoffs also, this is what the other thing too, some of the spinoffs that are cheap is they're actually intentionally spinning off the junk. Right. You know, in this case, there's, there's certain tax benefits too, by, by having a uh, Warner media spun out. So they don't have to pay taxes on it. It's a, what's it called? A, a reverse Morris trust or something like that. And I guess in your case, if, if they do spin off Warner and, and you look at it and it's like, wow, they did put a lot of junk in here. You can always sell it because it was, you know, you got shares and you kind of, yeah, you I mean, kind I, of got your payout because you got the, the premium as the company got bought out. Yeah. I, again, though, I mean, there's going to be so much cash flow coming from these two businesses that I don't think you'll, you'll do bad. You may not hit it out of the park, but I, I think your I think your downside's pretty, pretty limited. Again, not an investment device, but from my opinion, I, I think the downside's pretty limited here. There's also a chance that in a few years that, that a new entity gets bought by someone else. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing a lot of consolidation. There's a lot of interesting things happening in the media industry. And I think if people are interested in it, the history of the media industry, like I'm reading a book about Sumner Redstone right now and Viacom. Okay. And it's, it's fascinating just, you know, just a couple decades ago. Well, maybe more a couple, but I mean, that used to be like the growth industry. And, and if you think of like how we look at the fangs now, it's kind of how the cable operators were back then. And it's just, it's funny seeing that kind of life cycle. And so, you know, as you look around at all of the different change in media, are there any other opportunities you like, whether related to media or media technology or anything of that nature? Yeah. Yeah. And before I answer the question, I'll just leave with one thing too, where while cable, right, legacy cable is slowly in decline, you know, the future is the subscription business. Hmm. You know, this is an opportunity for discovery and Warner Media to sort of supercharge that together and have some you know real synergistic relationship. But that but that future is in is in the um, subscription business. And in, in terms of other technology, I mean podcasting is it, and we're on a podcast. We are in the very early innings of podcasting. I think people might listen and watch old podcasts, you know, say 30, 40 years from now, the way that we watch, you know, like silent films, you know, where that was like the big thing back then so whatever whatever we're doing right now we'll look back in 20 30 40 years and be like wow this was this was literally the beginning they, they had no idea what was about to come but i think if you are in the podcasting business you are you are writing some industry growth for many 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 years uh to come so i am personal my, my largest personal position so i own it for my clients too but from my personal account it's even a larger position it's in a liberated syndication whose main business is Libsyn, the podcast host and that is a really interesting situation going on right there so i, I could talk about that if, if you'd like give us like the elevator pitch of somebody who doesn't know much about podcasting like why would they be interested in a company like this so you have a business with a very, very sticky business with about 80,000 podcasters on it. One of the original podcasting hosts, so they have that first mover advantage. It is being run in, in a very, very efficient and capable manner. 
Uh, there's just been a big management shakeup. They're finding a new CEO right now, but salaries have come down a lot. There's, there's an activist that and, and he shook things up and had the CFO and CEO removed from the company who were basically stealing from the company. It was, it was egregious. And you're basically paying a very low, I don't remember the exact number offhand, but it's it wasn't much more than 10 times uh, free cash flow for a company that you know could potentially be growing at 30, 40% you know, for the next 10 years. So you're, you're paying very little for a high growth stock. It's like a pure play on podcasting. Totally, yeah. They also, I mean, they do own uh, Pair Networks too, which is um, just like website hosting, but their main business is, is Lipson. So what makes podcasting so appealing? Well, funny you ask on a podcast. You know, Ironic. it's, yeah. I mean, look at this, right? We're, we're on a show right now. You know, so, you know, Andrew and Dave, how, how do you describe your show? Like, what's your, what's your show description? Andrew? Just a couple of guys who taught themselves how to invest and are trying to teach other people how to get started. And the, and the target audience is mostly for, for more beginners, right? Yeah. Yep. Right. So... If I was someone who was interested in investing, you know, maybe a beginner just starting off, but like also intelligent, like the, the vibe I get is like, you also are just intelligent beginners. You know, we, we have high level conversations as well. So there's a very, very niche specific audience that's listening to your show. And, you know, if you want to turn on the radio, you know, you kind of have to catch it when it's on. It might be sort of tailored more to the masses, right? So a lot of these, like, you know, Dave Ramsey's and Susie Orman and more like financial planning. But you have a very specific thing you do. And, you know, on my show, you know, well, shameless plug, it's generally more for more advanced investors. And there's this very specific niche of, I would say, highly sophisticated value investors that tend to listen to my show. So what's really cool is you can micro-target and build these little communities around your show which is not impossible to do with radio, but it's harder. So there's, there's a more personalized aspect to, to podcasting. It really brings power to anyone that has a message to share. And the other cool thing is that it's, it's totally a meritocracy. You know, I don't have to be signed up to some big network to have my message shared. But, you know, if, you, if I keep sharing episodes and no one listens, you know, maybe I, I got to either step up my game or I'm not very good. However, with no budget and no marketing budget and nothing fancy, just a microphone and a laptop, you know, I can have people subscribe to the show, listen to the episodes, and so can you. And I, I think it really breaks up any of the, bureauc- the corporate bureaucracy of radio and TV and really brings the power to the host. And I think that is an incredible thing uh, for society, quite frankly. And listeners tend to love it. Yeah, I'm a hundred percent advocate on podcasting. I mean, you know, I was a podcast listener before I became a podcast host, you know, likewise. and everything yeah, I'm saying is it's, it's amazing that the depth that a podcast can go into that, like you said, you won't see on mainstream because they're trying to appeal to so many people. Whereas, Hey, there's other people like me who, who like to really get into the nitty gritty and get down and dirty. But, you know, for whatever reason, that's not something you would see on the news because if there's, you know, a hundred people, 10 people might find it interesting, 90 people wouldn't. So they're not going to give it their time. Right. But now you have podcasting, you have 
YouTube, you have all these different platforms now that are coming out completely revolutionizing the way we do media. And I think, I mean, personally, I love it. You know, I love being able to kind of pick whatever I want to watch, whatever I want to listen to and have it very specific, very tailor made. Like you said, it's good for society because it gives a lot of value. You know, you turn, you turn on some random thing and, and hope to get a good investment idea. It can be hard sometimes, you know, but when you, somebody might be interested in China or Japan or, or, you know, discovery, like we've been talking about today, and they could see that title on there, click on it and get way more information than they would have without the podcast being there. And that's how it can be so powerful. And to add to that, if someone who's a podcast host listens to this episode, which, you know, a lot of listeners, you know, a lot of hosts are also podcast listeners, someone can make an episode saying, Hey, you know, Eric's an idiot about discovery and he's totally wrong about this. And here's my view. That's kind of cool. You know, this is, there's a lot more of that, you know, back and forth, you know, we can post this thing on Twitter and, and get comments and have debate, right? Cause it's, it's a market, you know, I don't necessarily have the truth, right? I'm just one guy on the internet and has an opinion and, and then has a, has an idea. And, and clearly when I buy stock, someone's selling to me and they might have a different idea. So I, I think the, it, it provides more of a conversational intimacy, more so than you would get with uh, radio and certainly more than you would get with TV. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as, as somebody who is older in the room, so shall, shall we say, I remember the days of radio and you know, having a, you know, I, I'm this old that I remember I had to get up off the couch to go change the channel on TV. So I know you guys don't know what that's like, but no. yeah, I, 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 I remember what that was like. <laughs> it was, it was awful. And you only had three channels and, you know, sometimes you had to move the rabbit ears on the TV to get the reception to come in. I mean, yeah, it was, it, it, it was the dark ages for sure. But anyway, it's, you know, the, the, the opportunities to learn things. I mean, that's how I got into podcasting. The listening was the opportunity to learn stuff. You know, I, I yeah. love history and I came across this history podcast called the history of Rome by Mike Duncan. And that would just open my eyes to this whole podcasting thing. And I was hooked and I would listen to him at work. I would listen to him on my car I'd listen to him. When I was walking my dog and, you know, it just became a thing for me. And yeah, it's, there's so much opportunity for, people to express their viewpoints, to learn things. And that's what I really like about it. Yeah. And that's, yeah, um, that's awesome. Yeah. And, and we're, we're carving, you know, we're carving the future as, 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 as podcast, I mean, we're all podcast hosts here, which I think is awesome, right? It's like, there's no rules in a sense. Like we're literally creating the foundation. So it's cool to see how, how this is going to unfold over the next few decades. But my, my thesis and, you know, we're recorded. So we're on record. My thesis is in 20 years. Someone could watch this conversation, like if they only knew what was about to happen, you know, and, and they'll look at this as you know having to get off the couch to change the channel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but like, I mean, you probably thought that was cool, right? That you actually had a right. Oh yeah, no, oh, yeah. I mean, you know, we had a black and white TV. And that was my first TV. So when yeah. when they when they went to color, it was like, wow, this is a big deal. So yeah. Hey, I remember my my grand my grandfather talking to me about being able to watch the world series on TV, how cool that was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was, I was, when I worked in the restaurant business, I was talking to an employee once and we were talking about some sitcom and I said, I remember when it was on every Thursday night, she said, it was on once a week. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, how old are you? I don't know. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, no, I, I agree. So, 
how does this play into your idea with Ripson then? So I, you know, is, yeah. that, is that really kind of where that took you? Well, it was, so, so it was one of these situations. So look, I look at a lot of very tiny businesses and micro caps and Lipson was this really interesting situation because here it was trading at about one time earnings uh, a few years ago. This is when the stock was at one. It's now at around four. And, you know, I saw all this growth ahead of it. But what was keeping it down? It was actually so as a spinoff. It was spun out of a company called Fab Universal, which was a Chinese business, which turned out to be a fraud. <laughs> Speaking of, <laughs> this goes full circle. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, they had like, had like kiosks where you could like get like movies and shows and watch stuff. And it turned out that the kiosks either weren't, some of them weren't real. A lot, most of them didn't even work. The entire business was made up, but they, ha- I don't even, but they happened to own the company that owned Libsyn. So when they spun it out, Fab Universal ended up going to zero. There was a whole lawsuit and there's still litigation going on with the CEO and the CFO right now. And, you know, how much did they know? And it, it was a pretty heated public battle going on with the activists and the management, but it was, it was so ridiculous that one time the CEO was paying himself you know, with like option grants and incentives, it was going to be like 50% of the income was going to go to his pocket, which even then it was still stock was still cheap because like, it was a good business, but his name was Chris Spencer. So getting Chris Spencer off, getting the CFO, who's also making an egregious salary, getting them off. I think the stock's still super cheap and there's the overhang, you know, they just filed an 8K, which was a total mess. Nothing to be expected, but again, these micro caps, you know, any bit of news can send the stock one way or the other. So the stock sold off, you know, basically what happened, they had a restatement saying, Hey, you know, the last few years of financials are going to be a little bit different. But if you've been following the story, you already knew that was going to happen. And there's also the new CFO just resigned. So people got freaked out by that. But again, you know, here's a guy coming in to, you know, be the, you know, I don't, I don't know what the full story is, but you can imagine here's the CFO. He kind of comes in to take the place of this old, you know, horrible CFO. And now his entire job is like doing like financial statements. I mean, that's got to be a miserable, <laughs> and I don't think that's necessarily what he signed up for. So people, got, I think, got freaked out by that. But and then there's also the the Chinese. There's a Chinese shareholder who's in jail right now, who owns a little over thirty percent of the stock that he got through the Fab Universal spinoff. So the company is now arguing that those shares uh, were obtained illegally because it was from a fraudulent company. So they're asking a judge to cancel the shares. I don't know if they're going to win that lawsuit, but if they do, that's instantly, you know, a little over 30% of the shares outstanding go away overnight, which is, you know, right, you know, completely accredited to, to shareholders. So another one of these situations, there's a lot of ways you can win a ton of uncertainty and you're getting a high growth stock at, at, a, at a super low, you know, free cash flow multiple. It honestly, it does sound scary though. And I would, I would, be worried about you know you talked about like melting ice cubes this one sounds like a boiling pot of water but (laughs) you know i guess that's why we diversify and you gotta if if i think if you want to get something really really cheap you have to be able to weather some adversity and so if if this is stuff that's already expected you're going to get in at a cheap price and then that's where you can get the double triple quadruple 10 baggers from something that people found out it's not as bad as it seemed. Yeah. I mean, there was even a comment. There was some comments online of, you know, oh, well, so they just did this pipe deal to raise some money to make an acquisition. They just bought AdvertiseCast. And people were annoyed that it was a pipe deal. And I was like, well, why didn't, you know, 
why did the activists do the pipe deal and you know why didn't they what's just, a pipe deal can you explain that just for a second it's just it's basically a private raise of capital as opposed to just you know selling equity and people you know someone someone online recently was accusing the activists of you know self-dealing and all this you know stuff it's like well no you, you can't really be selling equity when you don't even know what the financials are you know so so you know that's not the that was not the ideal situation but you know the thing's a mess right now so they got to clean up the numbers once they clean that up i mean here's what i think will probably happen they'll clean it up grow the business and then they'll sell it to sell it to something. you know because that, that company again you know would 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 you, know, you have eighty thousand people using using it. You have a larger company that can can cut the cost dramatically, you know, improve the cost structure. That would be ripe for um, a buyer, but they're not going to. I don't think they would sell it until they they clean the numbers up, get a new CEO, show a few years of growth, and then and then sell it. That's what I would do. But you're looking, you know, yeah, but I mean, you know, right now in a four dollar stock, I mean, even in a normal valuation. For you know those kinds of companies, you know it would probably be like seven or eight dollars. They could probably get in the sale right now if they wanted to sell right now. But if they grow the company for a few years, you know you're you're potentially looking at you know fifteen twenty dollars stock. And I mean, I got it at one, so I've, if, I've been buying if, up. If they along have numbers, the way. that's the that's the key thing, right? If they have oh, numbers. they do have numbers. It's, it's I mean, these restatements aren't going to be gigantic. It's, it it it. A lot of it is just had to do with like the taxes and, and the old CFO not accounting for taxes properly and all that. No, I mean they're a very profitable company. They're they're a wonderful business. Yeah, there's there's no question they're profitable. Yeah, I, I, if I made it seem like that, that's not that's not the issue. These these are, these are very minute technicalities um, of just what do we owe in taxes. They're a very profitable business. So okay. it's like it's uh, what Monish Pabrai would say, you know, low risk, high uncertainty. No, high un- low risk, high uncertainty. Heads I win, tails I don't lose that much. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, Eric, thank you very much for joining us tonight. So, for any of those out there that would like to learn more about you and kind of what you do, where can they go to find more about you? They can go to uh, gscm.co, which is my website for Granite State Capital Management. They can also just contact me either through Twitter or through Instagram. Very active on both. And if you're into state, you'd like my Instagram as well. And both my, my handles is Eric Schlein, E-R-I-C-S-C-H-L-E-I-E-N. You know, people don't always want to spell it. So if you want to put it in the show notes I will. for people, I appreciate it. Yep, absolutely. But I'm very available. And I, I respond to all messages. So even if you just have a question or, hey, can you can you talk to me about blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm not going to give you stock advice, but I'm always happy to answer investment-related questions. Awesome. Well, again, I thank you very much for coming to talk to us and spending some time and helping educate us on investing abroad, how to avoid fraud in China, and more information about Time Warner and Discovery as well as Lipson. And all the, just all the great knowledge you share with us, plus Andrew's comments about the steak, that was kind of worth the podcast alone. So. <laughs> my, my pleasure. Thanks a lot. It's been fun. Yeah, you're welcome. Well, thanks, Eric. Out. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day.
Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad... To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.